You are listening to the Entrepreneur Podcast from Western's Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship, powered by Ivy. In this series, join me, Eric Morse, as we uncover the stories of our entrepreneurial legends. These Western founders have revolutionized industries, built recognizable brands, and added richness to lives across Canada and beyond. Discover their origins, their greatest moments, their deepest challenges, and what makes each of them tick. Welcome to the Legend Series. If talking about the weather is Canada's favorite pastime, Pierre Morissette is the nation's weatherman. Since 1989, Pierre has been at the helm of Palmorix Media Inc., the parent company of the Weather Network and Meteo Media, which provides remote towns and major cities lined across the second largest country in the world with accurate, up-to-date weather information. In this episode of Legends, Pierre Morissette joins me to talk about the evolution of Palmorix Media, from its start in radio and television to creating one of Canada's earliest and largest online presence through the web and mobile app revolution. He also shares the impact of his MBA program at Ivy, the importance of trusted advisors and mentors throughout his journey, and his growing role in championing entrepreneurship across Canada. Pierre, thanks for joining us today. Really great to see you, as, as always. Uh, wanted to have kind of a, a far-ranging discussion today, but really about your entrepreneurial journey and, and life's journey through education a little bit as well. And So maybe just to, to kick things off, um, was entrepreneurship always on your radar? Is this something as a, you know, a school kid you were, you were thinking about as, as you were growing up? Well, as you know, I've uh, wanted to be an entrepreneur from a pretty young age, uh, I remember in high school, I would sit down on Sunday mornings with my dad, who would be going through uh, different files uh, uh, for the company that he led, this large food company. And uh, he'd be working on an acquisition. I'd ask him questions about the target and how he valued the business and and what he was looking for and stuff like that. And still in the same vintage, uh, I'd be reading some of his Fortune magazines and uh, um, found those, a lot of those stories to be very uh, interesting. And uh, that's the time where I decided, you know, I'm going to run a company too someday. Okay. But um, uh, the one difference was that the company I would run uh, would preferably be a company that I would also own. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, that's when um, the idea was sort of formed in my mind okay and uh you know i resurrected that idea several times along my journey until <laughs> I, I took the plunge uh, in 1989 to to start up pelmerix okay well we'll come back to that a little bit uh so early early days high school you're already very interested in business and and uh following both I guess the popular press, but also getting some private tutelage from from your father in terms of business and key issues and things like that. When you went to university, was that did you go with the idea of building on that knowledge? Was it always part of the plan in terms of what you would study and, and where? Yeah, uh, I I did take a a bachelor's degree and majored in economics. That was something that would apply to to a whole bunch of things. Some of my electives were accounting courses and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I, I just wanted to get a good uh, education for a generalist to be a, 
uh, a good communicator in in whatever I would be doing. So, um, but I, I I was basically um, shaping it up to to become a rounded uh, a general business practitioner. Okay. And you've always uh, spoken glowingly about your experience at Ivy, and, and we appreciate that very much. You know, what was it about your MBA experience that, that maybe helped continue or push you on that, that journey? Well, Ivy at the time, it's 50 years ago, so <laughs> my, the class of 72 was a school that, you know, it, it focused on preparing uh, people for the financial services sector, for the consulting sector, but also the general management sector. So mm. entrepreneurship was still not no. uh, part of the school then. So I, I focused on um, learning the skills uh, that you get from uh, an MBA. And um, I did, you know, focus on the financial side, you know, uh, on acquisitions mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Um, but that was um, uh, a slight focus for me. But it's... Uh, in in general, um, the business school gave me the the skill sets required to be a, a very good top level C suite manager, mm -hmm. and uh, that uh, I could port that into any kind of field and so on. But um, you know that that's uh, that's what it gave me, and all the soft skills of an entrepreneur, such as the the, the mindset, the the attitude, the never say die attitude. There's always a way. There's mm -hmm. always a solution. It's uh, don't give me the problem, give me the solution type of thing. <laughs> I mean, that kind of attitude that's innate, but the um, all the skills that make up a strong uh, business person mm -hmm. um, were uh, were given to me by Ivy. Yeah. Um, great. If you fast forward to today, today you've got you know the entrepreneurship uh, program that basically will uh, prepare somebody to launch an entrepreneurial career. But um, yeah, you know, for me, Pierre, it was uh, it was a logical next step in that we were always a general management school, and an entrepreneur is a general manager on steroids to some mm -hmm. extent, and so. You know, I think uh, you and I kind of came together about the same time and with, with similar visions for what entrepreneurship could be at Ivy. And uh, I sure appreciate uh, all these years having the chance to work with you on Yeah, that. well, it's been a lot of fun, that's for nice. sure. So, um, you know, traditional start, you said at the time it was mostly, you know, finance and, and consulting. And, and I know your first job was at Royal Bank. Uh, what was it about that that, uh, you know, appealed to you in terms of, again, you know, continuing this journey towards entrepreneurship? Well, uh, a place like RBC is uh, just an excellent uh, place to carry on your studies. Yeah. It, it prepares you uh, for uh, the financial side of, uh, of business. Um, and what I wanted was to find out what uh, would make them say yes. Okay. And um, it's uh, so being involved on, on their side of the desk in considering applications to operate a simple, uh, to fund a simple business, to fund a, a major acquisition mm -hmm. uh, in, a, in a company, a major capital project, um, all the stuff that would lead up to a yes decision was uh, something that I wanted to learn. Okay. Um, I, I was there five years, and, um, uh, and then I went to work for 
telemedia. Right. Uh, which is a well, family business. Well, family business. Uh, Philippe Gaspé Bobier yeah. um, and his wife um, uh, owned it at the time. It was uh, the largest in radio in and one of the largest in Canada, one of the largest in consumer publishing right. in Canada. What was it about that space that interested you at the time? Well, it was the opportunity. They, they came to me and, um, and said, are you interested in the, in the financial role, the CFO role? Okay. And uh, I was just a young guy at the time, um, and um, I said, hey, this is a great opportunity. It, it will enable me to learn uh, the media sector, but also learn the, the, the discipline of being a CFO in a company. Mm-hmm. This company uh, was also significantly involved in investments and so on. And um, so one of the companies was Kentel, you know, the, w- one of the first three partners uh, right. of Kentel. Another one was Kencom. And I was on the board of um, both of those entities in their formative stages because I was uh, uh, responsible for putting the deals together for telemedia. And, um, you know, in terms of CanCom, it was a group of five uh, of Canada's largest uh, broadcasters that came together to create um, uh, this satellite communications company. Mm -hmm. And uh, so in year two, I was on the board, uh, the president of Cancom uh, went to CRTC as its chair, and we're in the process of going public. So uh, they said, Pierre, why don't you go and run the company for six months, uh, take the company public, and then you know, can go back to telemedia in your previous role. So <laughs> six months became six years because, uh, number one, I love the, uh, the space. Yeah. We're at the center of everything going on in the media side in those days, and in Sure, it was a startup, but it was a rapidly growing startup. Right. Uh, we made Canada's top 50 uh, fastest growing companies list, very successful IPO, mm-hmm. but we, we had to grow the business to um, be able to transcend the break-even point. Sure. And um, it, was, um, it was just a real adventure. So uh, one day, um, you know, we, we had gone public, very successful public issue, uh, we had grown to the point where we were very profitable, uh, very uh, successful for shareholders. Um, it did become a subsidiary of one of the partners okay. who, through a creeping takeover, okay. um, basically uh, they became the controlling shareholder. At that time, I reevaluated the landscape. I said, I don't want to be running a subsidiary of another company. Right. So basically I said, if I'm going to take the plunge, now's the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was turning 40 and uh, um, I basically uh, gave myself two and a half years to acquire a base okay. in the communications sector yep. and then to build on that base. Now if, I, if I remember, you, you founded the company before you really had a company and built a board of directors. Is that, is first, that true? First thing I did um, when I decided to, <laughs> when I left Kencom yep. and uh, created this company, first thing I did was to hire a blue chip board of directors. We were five people and uh, they were just first class uh, directors and um, I said look I'm I'm a Pisces I'm a bit of a dreamer your job is to keep my two feet on the ground okay. and um, 
my my commitment to you is I'll listen to whatever you, you your your advice is, and and then uh, great things will happen. Yeah. So um, uh, they were on the board up until 2010 or so. That's amazing. And um, um, they were involved in every single strategic decision that we had to make. They were all great directors. Yeah. In fact, uh, they're on the list of uh, our directors um, emeritus. And uh, they have an open invite to any board meeting, any prior uh, board dinner the night mm -hmm. before. And many of them show up and, yeah. and participate. Bright group of people and, and having met them, nice group of people as well. Like yeah. You, you want to spend time around the, that group. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And and uh, But they're from disciplines that each brought a perspective to the company that uh, uh, was value-added. And um, uh, they, they were great. Yeah. So the, the first acquisition was radio, if I, mm -hmm. again, I'm going back on memory a little bit. And you got into radio, and then somehow that pivoted into weather. Can you just... A little bit take me through that yeah well the the first acquisition within six months was a group of uh, 16 mid-market radio stations and we quickly formed a satellite programming network um, but at the same time uh, an economic uh, meltdown happened in Canada mm -hmm. early 90s yeah and um, that really uh, uh, affected those stations so we lost half of the top line and wow. uh, now the satellite programming network meant that we're cutting back half of our uh, people right. uh, and and supplementing all live programming with uh, regional feeds and so on but um, uh, in 19 uh, so that was in 89 late 89 that i i took them over yeah. um, the uh, the recession started in late 90. Uh, in 91, I got a phone call, said, Pierre, the, the weather network is for sale. Are you interested? Um, I said, you bet. And I got on a plane uh, to Montreal. It was a Thursday afternoon. I got a plane to Montreal. Next morning, 9 o'clock, I'm meeting with the, the president of the company that owned the weather network, uh, found out how much they wanted. And uh, that weekend, I convinced our board convinced the bank <laughs> to support it, uh, put together the term sheet the following Tuesday. By Friday, uh, a week later, we're, yeah. we're um, negotiating the, the agreement, and it was signed. Wow. And um, the following week, a bunch of Canadian players found out that um, it was for sale and tried to unwind my deal, but wow, really? unsuccessfully. Okay. Then the CRTC finally decided in 1993, two years later, it was on the rebound at that time, long story, but okay. um, that uh, basically they, they would uh, allow the transaction. So two years after the deal. Yeah. It was the first transaction involving the sale of a, a satellite programming network mm -hmm. in Canada. Um, and... Um, you know, there were some questions on the first application regarding, uh, you know, cash flows and stuff like that. And I said, guys, you know, here are, are the facts. Yeah. You know, it's not a something. These are facts. And, uh, you know, so at, at the end of the day, they, they um, 
held a new hearing with um, you know the corrected application and uh, the deal was approved fantastic it, it's a uh, you know back then it was not a brand that that many people know about uh, and boy has that changed but what strikes me in your story and I'm gonna come back to the brand because I think it's it's really exciting yeah is that all of your past experience kind of came together and had prepared you for that moment. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, whether it was media or the bank or doing deals or, you know, really putting together some, uh, some big deals uh, in your days back then. And it all kind of came together to this. What was it that, about the weather network that, that was interesting, that, that you saw the opportunity in it? When I, when I created Pelmrex in 89, I had the thought of interactive distribution of information. Okay. And while I was at CanCon, uh, I got involved in uh, using satellites to exchange information, and I created VSAT Networks, which oh, yeah. uh, supplies interactive data. We signed up Canadian Tire and Cooperators Insurance to, to uh, move a lot of their data around mm -hmm. back and forth. And, uh, you know, so basically it was to create an interactive information network. Okay. Radio didn't quite nope. <laughs> satisfy that. <laughs> but the weather network was a great interactive mm -hmm. platform, potentially. Now, when I bought the weather network, it was one uh, satellite transponder distributing both services. So when... French service was distributing local data. The English part would be distributing video. Okay. Uh, and then they'd alternate. Alternate. First thing I did was create two transponders. Right. And you separate the networks. Yep. That opens up a whole bunch of time. And uh, they weren't selling any advertising. Mm. They were just relying on the subscri subscription fee. Well, the potential of advertising was all upside. Yeah. So then I put together a sales force. So now we're creating advertising sales, yeah. which is all gravy. Right. Um, then two years later, internet came along, and um, we created uh, one of the first, one of the early Canadian websites. Mm -hmm. It since uh, grew up to become Canada's largest Canadian website. Right. Uh, and that was the Weather Network and Meteo Media brands that did that. Then mobile came along. Yeah. Uh, we created um, mobile web services. Uh, then we created mobile apps. And by the end of the, um, well, in, into 2010 and beyond, we've become the largest mobile player in Canada. Right. So that the, these are, are are just some of the logical steps in the evolution. Well, I'm not sure how logical they were, uh, but I think I think you were you had some foresight in getting in early on all of them, and it was a, a rapidly changing technological landscape uh, in in the field. And for what I think a lot of people imagined was a government enterprise, you moved really really fast and uh, actually created a brand that is one of Canada's best known brands. And I think it was keeping up with the technology and, and staying ahead a lot. It, it is one of Canada's best-known brands. Uh, it's when you're in every home through TV, mm -hmm. uh, and every home uses your service, and mostly every day, you know, the mobile app is used about 
20 plus times per month. Yeah. So uh, with all that uh, repetition, you know, ba basically you become a, a household brand. Right. And um, uh, also you become a trusted brand because of the information that we're providing. So in terms of uh, Canada's most influential and trusted brands, we ranked in single digits yeah. amongst all Canadian companies. Mm -hmm. This includes everybody. Yep. And uh, amongst all brands in Canada, many of which are from the States and Europe and so on, Absolutely. we ranked uh, in the teens. Yeah. And uh, that is absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. You know? And, and that was, the brand strength was driven by uh, TV. So now that TV is sort of, the, we call it the slow melting ice cube, <laughs> still a very large uh, iceberg, mm -hmm. but it's, um, it is slow melting. Um, it's still driving the brand, but in, in a diminishing way. Mm -hmm. So we, we have to, um, one of our projects is really identifying new new methods to uh, protect the brand. Well, and I, you know, I'm one of those users that has it on my phone and uh, use it every day. And I, I know that uh, data is more and more important to the business all the time. And, and that's been true for some time now, but I think even more so today. You know, just as you look ahead, what are some of the things that you think about when you think of uh, the weather network? Um, well, looking ahead, uh, one of the key jobs of one of our uh, of, of our CEO is is to manage the day to day, but it's also to look over the horizon to see the the big trends that are coming up. And um, you know, so basically, what what's in place today is uh, is the data business. It's um, we we have two databases. One is our weather data, and the other one is our user data. And um, you know, both of them are are unique and and very very uh, large databases. We use that data. In, in the most uh, legal way. I mean, it's totally anonymous and mm -hmm. so on. Um, we protect uh, our consumer data like uh, right. there's no tomorrow. But but we do have all this data, and we put them in buckets, and, and we get insights from those buckets. And uh, it's a very rapidly growing business. So while we're the gold standard for uh, protecting our consumer data, uh, it's also a massive, massive uh, rather, um, data market opportunity. So it's within those constraints, it's managing it so that you, you can milk that, that opportunity. Yeah. So that, that's one thing. Climate change is, is a long-term form of weather. Weather information is, tends to be short-term forecasts. Right. Right. Uh, for any place in the world. Sure. Climate change is really long-term trends that uh, create uh, uh, create risks for uh, the publics of every country. So climate change for us is, is uh, a new frontier, uh, how to get people's carbon uh, footprint down to negligible, um, and replace uh, the old with a new right. uh, for individuals, for businesses, for governments. And um, that, that's an area that, uh, now, you, I, I don't think you'll get the same kind of volumes that you get for a weather business, mm -hmm. but you definitely get a very captive audience who will consult it uh, minimum 
a few times per per week, a few yeah. times per month. And, uh, you know, you could even foresee a way that the the data you collect could help people reduce their footprint as as we go forward. Yeah, I'm I'm speaking to a, a company who uh, is a startup. Nice. You're, you're familiar with those, <laughs> uh, based in the states that me- that um, measures helps people measure their carbon footprint at right. the individual level, business level, and government level. Yeah. And then uh, translates that into action plans. So it's and it's all done by an app. I want to talk to them. I want sure. to find out about them. Uh, we're talking to another company that uh, gathers uh, all kinds of information from uh, and and uh, commitments, financial commitments uh, via crowdfunding from uh, individuals, and and basically they translate uh, their uh, initiatives into saving uh, the, the planet, the oceans, yeah. and all that. So they, they're up to $10 million in annual uh, funding that they, you know, to support their, their, their structure and so on. Wow. So it's, it's partnering with those kinds of people, mm-hmm. and um, it's uh, just basically making a difference in that category. Yeah. That, that's what I see in the horizon. Absolutely. It's not there yet today. No, no. But that's... Um, Looking forward. That's yeah, no, thanks for sharing that. Uh, one more kind of weather network question, and then uh, we'll shift gears just a little bit. I know that uh, you and Pilmerics had a major role in Canada's public alerting system. Just tell us a little bit about how you got involved and, and how that kind of came to be. Well, the official name of the service is Alert Ready. It's a uh, private-public partnership um, involving uh, every province in the country mm. and uh, several branches of the federal government. And, uh, and ourselves as the operator of the network. Um, ourselves as the operator of the network are really responsible for creating this network. Yeah. Um, it started in the early 90s, right after we got uh, ownership of the weather network. Uh, uh, we started working on developing new technology which would uh, uh, be inserted into our local cable systems and and would receive a message from a central point okay. that uh, was the uh, the local alert. Yeah. And because of our technology, it'd be restricted to uh, distribution in that. Because right. you were already area. looking for local weather, I, I suppose. It... Well, we were providing local right. weather to uh, through our network uh, of local terminals. Mm-hmm that would just capture the information that applied to that region. Right, so you could follow that. So th- mm-hmm. then we'd say, well, let's expand that to the message. Great. And so we uh, uh, we developed the technology. We applied to the CRTC a number of times. I guess one of my <laughs> skill sets is uh, not... Persistence? <laughs> well, yeah, it, totally. It's uh, not taking no for an answer. Okay. Uh, and reacting. So after four or five tries, uh, fast forward to to uh, 2007 or something like that, um, applied to CRTC and, you know, basically if you got a, a negative response, what are the obstacles? Then you fill those and then you go back again. And uh, finally, um, we, we offered a, a fully subsidized free service uh, and the one trade-off is that we stay on basic cable, oh, I see. Okay. basic cable, and um, and the CRTC approved that. Mm-hmm. And so then we we launched, uh, we embarked on launching um, uh, uh, Alert Ready. Yeah. 
Uh, this public-private partnership is probably one of the um, most satisfying deals that we've put together at Pelmux. And today, I think we operate um, one of the top, if not the top, um, emergency broadcast systems in the world. Mm -hmm. And um, so we, we started off by distributing on TV. Then we put it on web. Then we put it on mobile yeah. uh, by issuing alerts uh, ac mm -hmm. across everybody's phone. And, and uh, we expanded the messaging to Amber Alerts and so on. And um, uh, now, uh, you know, not every province uh, um, was totally on side uh, uh, when we started it. Everybody showed up at the board meetings yep. uh, that we had for this uh, service. But, um, you know, today everybody seems to be on side. That's a great And, and great it's story. evolving with, together with the board. Uh, we set the standards, we set the security, we set the goals uh, uh, for each year, and, and um, you know, it, it's, it's just a fantastic success story, and, and it, it saves lives, ultimately. It's a, it's a great, really a great service and a, and a great win-win, you know, mm -hmm. private-public partnership in that, in that sense, which uh, I know is one of your values as well. Yeah, and I, it is, and um, so I'm, I'm not quite sure yet what the next step is for Alert Ready, but it's um, um, definitely, now that we're into mobile and so on, um, so what is the next uh, uh, thing that we develop for that? Mm -hmm. It's, um, you know, that'll be an interesting challenge to, sure. to figure that out. Sure. All right, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit uh, and you know talk about maybe some lessons for for some of those that might be listening around entrepreneurship. Uh, you've led this company through some tough times, Pierre. Uh, maybe maybe none tougher. Maybe maybe that's not true than the, the last couple of years with COVID. Um, but I know financial crisis and you know there, there's been several of them uh, over the last couple of decades. What what are some of the things that you've learned as an entrepreneur and as a person that's maybe seen you through these periods? Well, um, look, we've had four big downturns, actually a fifth that's starting now with the Ukraine war and the uh, inflation and, and high interest rates that, uh, that, uh, and, and the supply chain crises and so on. Um, one thing is that we're a very resilient company and um, it's, uh, we, we've emerged uh, through each of these crises. first one was the economic meltdown of early 90s. Then there was the dot-com bust of 2000. Then the economic meltdown of 2008. Yep. Uh, then there's the pandemic of uh, the last uh, two and a half, three years. Uh, and now it's the war in the Ukraine. Like everybody, you incur an initial shock, but then there's mm -hmm. a quick recovery period. And, um, and then you come out of those events um, with results that are uh, every bit as strong as uh, when you were going into it. So we're very resilient. And um, uh, our philosophy is plan for the worst and hope for the best, yeah. but move fast. Okay. And uh, we, we've moved very fast on all of these uh, situations, and, and it stood us, uh, stood us well. We don't look for these events, but when <laughs> when they're they're happening, uh, we say, "Ooh, this is." So we'll we'll you know tend to freeze a whole bunch of stuff that we're doing, right? 
then when the event is, when people start acting yep. on them, uh, we're already in place. Yep. And um, and we tend to see it through. Yeah. Yeah, I think you've done a great job of kind of seeing the trajectory and, uh, you know, acting early, both to freeze things on the way down and, and then to invest on the way back up, uh, whether it's technology or, or just geography and different services. Uh, so looking back, since 2006, you have been intimately involved in growing entrepreneurship, education, research, and outreach at Ivy. Uh, that's true, not just at Ivy, but, but now Western and all across Canada. And we've done that through the Morissette Institute in Entrepreneurship. And uh, it's a journey that I've had the honor of coming along with you for, uh, for all of that time or most of that time. What, what moved you to make the decision to get involved uh, so, so intimately? And what do you see the role of entrepreneurship in, in shaping Canada and the world? Oh. <laughs> big, big, big question. That could be subject of a podcast on its own. Um, well, first of all, when we introduced, uh, when you introduced uh, uh, entrepreneurship to Ivy in the early 2000 period, and I came along around 2005 or Five six or, six, or seven, yeah. um, the. Um, I played a really bad round of golf, and you still decided to get involved. I think that's what happened. <laughs> so. Um, Look, uh, private enterprise makes up half to 60% of Canadian business activity. Um, it's, it's major, and uh, um, yet in uh, Ivy, um, entrepreneurship was not really that present mm -hmm. uh, in, in the curriculum. And I had a vision at the time of um, creating uh, entrepreneurship as a pillar of the school. Mm -hmm. So a school that creates uh, people for financial services, creates consultants, creates top general managers, also creates great entrepreneurs yeah. and more, more successful entrepreneurs. And that basically you tailor part of the program to the needs of entrepreneurs mm -hmm. or wannabe entrepreneurs. And, um, you know, so, so that was really the, the, the formative um, uh, thoughts behind the, the program. Uh, fast forward 10 years later, and Ivy has become very, very strong mm -hmm. in the field of entrepreneurship. And then I said, well, the next big thing is why not make it available to all students of Western, right. not just right. of Ivy. And that's something that you shared at the time and you initiated too. Um, so that, um, uh, well, let's, let's um, join forces on, on these efforts and let's, let's uh, take the Powered by Ivy Entrepreneurship Program Absolutely. to uh, make it available to uh, students across the board. And and you've you've taken that mandate and you've turned it into a real success story, uh, an evolving success story for Western students uh, who are not at Ivy. And when you look at the the most recent board of um, of uh, the Institute for Entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. uh, it it's 
you know, 40% people from Ivy, but 60% from everywhere in uh, Western. And uh, it totally reflects uh, the, the mandate of, of the program. Yeah. And it, it's, it's working, and it's working very successfully, and everybody's very passionate about it. And uh, so the end result is Western benefits from it. Right. Um, I think the country benefits from it. Uh, and uh, ultimately, I, I think uh, it, it will uh, result in extra funding for programs when successful entrepreneurs decide to give back because mm -hmm. they form the nucleus of most fundraising campaigns to begin with. Right. So right. It's, it's that vicious circle. And so it, it's, uh, that was an easy one. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know if it was easy, but well, boy, we sure appreciate uh, and have benefited from, you know, not just your, your resources, Pierre, but from your time and, and thinking about it as well. And, you know, the, the push to think bigger always. Uh, so it may have been my idea earlier to get into Western, but it was Pierre ringing in the back of my head of, uh, you know, think bigger, think mm -hmm. bigger. And, and that's, look, uh, our company, we, we have a 50-year plan. Right. People laugh when I say that, but we do have a 50-year plan. Um, the average tenure of a CEO in Canada is about seven years. And shrinking. Uh, uh, yeah. And that means that you have to become really good at grooming the next CEO. Mm -hmm. Even when that CEO is uh, is starting his mandate or her mandate. Right. And, um, you know, so that that's uh, that's one thing. But it's... It's also, you know, when you have to replace the board. It's when uh, um, uh, heirs will come into the business and and what's their entry level and how do you groom them and so mm. on. That 50-year plan answers so many questions. And that's the difference of an entrepreneur. Basically, you're thinking long-term. Right. You're not quarter to quarter. Right. And, and you're always, so you're always thinking, oh, what's that next big thing over the, one of the biggest threats to um, to any company is to not reinvent itself, right? Because every business has a product life cycle, yep. And um, unless they they add new areas of growth to take care of those areas that are mature and starting to decline, then uh, basically, uh, if you don't reinvent yourself, you will die. Yeah. And so, an entrepreneur with a long term plan for the company to keep it in the family uh, that stretch, stretches out 50 years, even 100 years. There's a study right now that I'm looking at. It's, um, it's almost 100 of the top companies in the world that are 100 years old. Wow. What are the factors that they share in common to have made them succeed for mm -hmm. over a hundred years, yeah, and and it's summarized down to about eight or ten points. Okay, so you always have to be looking yeah. long term over the horizon. Yeah, I was going to say, I I, I bet uh, thinking quarter to quarter is not in that list. <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That's right. Um, you know, think, thinking back to when you were leaving Ivy, what was something that maybe you wish you would have known about entrepreneurship and and the journey ahead uh, before you left uh, that we need to make sure we're instilling in our students um yeah it, there's so many things uh, one thing that does leap out 
is um, funding the business. Mm. Um, look, every every startup has a, a thirst for capital, right? Uh, to fund organic growth, to fund M and A growth, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Well, how do you maintain control of the company uh, if it's going to have a uh, a repeated requirement for new capital? Mm-hmm. And sometimes you have to sacrifice some growth to build up your capital base. Right. So in my company, I start off with, uh, you know, I had voting control of it, but I only own 13% of it. Uh, today, uh, we control 100% of the company, mm-hmm. and we control 100% of the votes too. So that means that along the way, I had to make a lot of trade-offs in terms of expansion for growing our equity position. And and that's... Um, but I think, Pierre, you've made the decision the other way, too, is to give up some equity uh, in order to grow at the right time or partner at the right time, but with a longer-term plan of how do I get that equity back. Is that fair? Um, yeah, there, there have been some, uh, uh, some of those... Uh, steps along the way but most of the time it's resulted in us not sacrificing yeah. giving up the equity mm-hmm. um, and um, you know but it's it's a study that we constantly do sure it's one of the big areas of decision making that we face every year and if we want to acquire a company yeah. that's going to be beyond our debt capacity then either you don't do it or you have to be able mm-hmm. to give up um, some capital. Yeah. I don't think we spend enough time on that. I think you're absolutely right in terms of what are the trade-offs in that regard and, and what's the long-term plan and how does this fit into the plan. We we just don't. Yeah. The other thing, too, is that an opportunity comes along and oftentimes they'll be bought out by a private equity firm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know that three to seven years later that company will be up for sale again. Right, uh, and when you have a long-term plan, then you say, "Well, I'll wait for the next time." Yeah, and and that's um, and they they do come around quite often. Yeah, well, I'm sure that's true. Well, Pierre, you've you've uh, you've built a legendary career. I think uh, there would be no no dispute about that. You've been recognized as a member of the Canadian Broadcasting Hall of Fame. You've received an honorary Doctor of Laws from Western. Named the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year, and in 2016, you were inducted as a member of the Order of Canada. That's, uh, that's quite a career. Is there a lesson or piece of advice that, that's held you in good stead that you'd be willing to pass on to maybe an aspiring entrepreneur or to the rest of us? Well, hmm. nobody has a monopoly on uh, wisdom or on making the right decisions. So uh, something that I mentioned earlier in this uh, podcast, a lesson that has uh, really uh, stood me well time and time and time again is to surround yourself with great people, listen to them, Mm -hmm. and great things will happen. Uh, I repeat that several times a year uh, in speeches or in conversations and and what have you. Look, uh, our company, we, we own the company. Yep. Yet we have an independent board uh, of nine people in mm-hmm. our operating company. There are two family members, my son and I, and seven independents. That's great. We seek their 
advice, wisdom, connections, network, all that stuff, mm -hmm. um, time and time again. In our holding company, uh, we have six board members. Again, that's two family members, but we operate six board members. I have a, a governance and succession committee right. with uh, two members on that uh, and the same people in the operating company as in the holding company. We have a compensation committee, mm -hmm. and um, uh, we don't have an audit committee in the in the holding company, but we do have one in in the operating company. Sure. So we behave like we're public, yeah, without the the focus on quarterly results, yeah. And um, we uh, every strategic issue is brought to the board and discussed and hashed out, and. Uh, we build in their input into our decision-making. Mm -hmm. That is um, um, the one lesson that I follow, and it's uh, one lesson that I want my successors to follow as well. Yeah, I, I think that's great advice. So, you know, just surround yourself with smart people and listen to them, mm -hmm. and then set up a governance structure that, that will help serve you for the next 100 years. And mm -hmm. I think that's what you've done. Yeah. So, Pierre, thanks so much for joining us and, and for your lessons and for your story. I think uh, we'll have a really great uh, uh, discussion about this uh, with uh, the listeners over the years. So thank you very much. Thank you. The Entrepreneur Podcast is sponsored by Quantum Shift 2008 alum Connie Clarici and Closing the Gap Healthcare Group. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player or visit entrepreneurship.uwo.ca slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.